Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians again. So turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're studying. Um, this is really the last chapter of correction that we see in the book. In chapter 7, Paul pivots to more of answering the questions. They've obviously sent him questions in corresponding with him. And he begins to unpack those questions in chapter 7. That's why we've kind of outlined the book 1 to 6, correction, and 7 to 15, or 16 really, is counsel. And uh, he's giving them, you know, answers to specific questions and addressing issues that were before them. But we're in chapter 6, and um, as we've gone through these opening chapters, it struck me this week in my study, one of the unspoken but kind of ever-present uh, realities of this letter thus far in, in Paul's writing to them as believers is this truth that we as Christians are people of the future, um, but we live in the present, meaning that um, we, we're not from the future, <laughs> we are of the future. That's a big difference there. Um, we are people of the future, but we live now in the present. He kind of begins right at the, at, right at the front of the letter by underscoring that reality. In, in verse 4, he says uh, of them, he says, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, I mean, there's so much into that section, but if you're in Christ this morning, what he wants you to understand is that you and I, if we're in Christ, have been showered with divine grace. He says we have been lavished spiritually in every possible way. We have been outfit with every spiritual gift and empowered um, to live a steadfast life of obedient faith and called into fellowship with the triune God. You've been declared blameless, he says here, and God's not guilty verdict has been pronounced over your heart and life and has been confirmed in the only place that it really matters, and that is in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, that's the reality. Our future hope is so complete that we can look eagerly, he says here, we can look eagerly for his return. And the reason we look eagerly is because we have nothing to fear. There's, there's absolutely nothing that we need to worry about. Unlike those who don't have Christ, we look eagerly for the revelation of the Lord Jesus because his return means the beginning of a future in which sin will fully and finally be reversed. Um, faith becomes sight and hope becomes reality. That's, that is the believer's future. And until then, you and I live as people of that future, but we do that in this present evil world. And, uh, and the fact that we're the people of the future means that our hearts and lives should look distinct from those who are perishing. It should, our lives should be different than those who are not saved. We have a distinct view, as we've seen in this book already, of a distinct view of wisdom 
that's unique and distinct from the world. We have a unique, a distinct view of God's power uh, and influence. Uh, We saw that also in chapter 1. It's different from the world. We have a distinct view of God's word, chapter 2 tells us, in God's revelation. We have a distinct view of, from the world about leadership and godly leadership and how we think about that and see, saw that in chapter 3. And we have a distinct view of what counts as true greatness um, and fate, what is faithful and what does that look like. And then even in chapter 5, we saw what, we have a distinct view of God's holiness from the world. Um, that's just We have a different standard than the world. Um, those of us who love Christ and those of us who are clinging to him by faith are people of the future and our lives are to be so distinct from the world and from those in the future that he describes us uh, in other portions of scripture, the word of God does, they describe us as strangers and aliens. Um, not from outer space, but aliens from another country. We, we live as those in a foreign country uh, and many of our church are, were not even born in the United States. Many of you were raised and born and raised even in another country or lived in another country for long stretches of time. And, you know, you know how it is when you go to another country or when you came here to the U.S., um, everything is different, totally different. Not just, the, not just the big things like the language or the system of government, those kinds of things, but you, you realize that all, there's so many little things that are different, the kinds of foods that people eat and how people drive and the way they relate to each other on a, on a, on a, on a cultural level, on a community level, how punctual they are or are not. And just all these little things are totally different. And when you go there, especially when you first arrive, it all feels so foreign. It all feels utterly different than what we're, what we're at least used to. And that's how I think we should think about our relationship to the world as maturing Christians. The longer that we're following Christ, the more not at home we should feel in this present evil world. doesn't mean we remove ourselves from the world, but we're certainly not at home like we would, be, would have been before. Paul calls us in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, he calls us a new lump of dough. Um, And that is indeed, he says, what we are. So um, just totally different. We are people of the future living in the present. But sometimes, and more oftentimes than we care to admit, um, even though we're people of the future, we think and we even conduct ourselves like people in the present. We live like those who are in the world, and, um, and we fail to live like we are, that is, people of a future age. Rather than thinking and living distinct from the world, we think and live like the world. And when that happens, that's when we need God's loving and sometimes even firm correction to remind us this is who we are. We're not like that anymore. And this is what God expects of us. That's what we see Paul doing in these opening six chapters of 1 Corinthians. He is writing to uh, correct their fleshly views of wisdom, their fleshly views of power and authority and influence, their fleshly views of leadership, um, and even how what is considered acceptable behavior amongst Christians. We saw that in chapter 5 as they tolerate someone engaged in immorality in their church. And he is, he is correcting that. He's saying, this isn't who you are, and this is not how we are to live. 
As we come to chapter 6, Paul takes aim at yet another issue that was festering in their midst. And, and that is, they were believers in the church of Corinth that were um, taking each other to court and filing lawsuits against one another to resolve disputes. And so I just want to read verses 1 to 11. We're just going to look at 1 to 8 this morning, but um, 1 to 11 is kind of one complete section. It helps us understand what Paul's getting at or where he's going. He says, is any one of you, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not is it is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the, king, the, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So the issue at hand here is, is easy enough for us to piece together as you look at the beginning of chapter 6. Christian A, we'll call him Christian A or her Christian A, has defrauded or taken advantage or done something against Christian B. And, and they've taken something from them in some material way. To resolve that dispute, Christian B has decided, I'm going to take Christian A to court and I'm going to, uh, to get them get my claim heard and, and have my claim against this person resolved. And uh, in so doing, then, the whole thing, Paul says, ends up being a total loss for everybody, both the church and to the two individuals who have this issue that they're taking to court. See, for those who claim to be people of the future, they, these two individuals that he's addressing, but really he's addressing the whole church here, they, they are uh, living like people of the present. They are responding to the situation the way the world would, and Paul does not hold back in this section. His argument is really not even an argument. It's, it's, almost, it's just a barrage, an onslaught of rhetorical questions, and, um, and they're meant to expose how incompatible their behavior and actions were with who they are as God's future people. And so the circumstance that he's pointing out here is the same circumstance issue, hard issue that he's been pointing out all along through chapters 1 to 6, and that is he is appealing to them to think through the reality that they are God's people of the future, and that reality must shape how they live in the present. This is who you are in the future, now this is how we need to live in the present. 
Um, and to be a, a lover of Christ, someone who loves Christ, means you and I are to be distinct from the world. And that distinctiveness affects how we think about litigation, about taking one another to court, and particularly how we do that, with, whether or not we do that with other believers. So Paul, in this section, asks a number of questions. It's just question, 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 question. It's almost rapid fire. And uh, they're all meant to reinforce several godly principles, and that's what we want to extrapolate in our outline this morning. They are questions that, that only have one legitimate answer. They're not really meant... To, he's not seeking information here. He is, he is exposing them uh, to um, his thinking and God's thinking on this matter, and he, it's meant to uh, have an effect on them. They're questions that point them to the fact that how we live in the present... It must reflect who we are. We are people of the future. So uh, Paul begins Paul begins in verses 2 and 3 by asking a handful of rhetorical questions. And the collective force of these questions give us a principle. And the principle is this. Christians must settle disputes with other Christians internally. That's, that's the principle. Christians must settle disputes with other Christians internally. In-house. Verse 2, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you, meaning as Christians, not competent to constitute the smallest courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So Paul says, again, as he does it six times in this whole section, he says, Don't you know? Don't you know this? Don't you know that? It's, it's, it's meant to communicate the reality that um, this is something they should have known. <laughs> um, it's something that should have been painfully obvious. Um, this wasn't anything that only people with secret knowledge would understand or be able to figure out. Paul says it's, it's painfully obvious that as Christians that the first, issue, the first thing we should do when we have a dispute with one another is to try and settle that dispute internally with God's people. That's why he's so beside himself in verse 1. And he really is, incre- he's just beyond un- um, upset, I guess, in verse 1. He says, how dare you go to law before the unrighteous and not the saints? I mean, you say, well, is, this, is he really being that harsh? Yes, he is. The, the, the way he uses the language here, the, the, the terms he uses, the way it's organized, he says many, he says, you know, what what is the matter with you? Um, we, at least me, I've been on the receiving end of a tongue lashing like that from my parents when I was growing up. You know, how dare you speak to your mother that way, right? Or uh, how dare you stay out till two a.m. and and not call and tell us where you were? Or you know, how dare you forget it was our anniversary and then gift me a set of dish towels after the fact? Right, and that—that's a very specific example. I don't know; it's not a real example. I'd never do that, but but we've all been on the receiving end of a tongue lashing like that. It's the same here with Paul. He says he can hardly believe that they think that this is okay; that that would be acceptable as for Christians to as they conduct and live amongst each other in the church. And the reason he gives are, are an argument from the greater to the lesser. Um, he says, "Do you not know?" that we will judge the world? Do you not know, verse 3, that we will judge angels? You say, well, wait a second. Paul expected them to know 
this, that, that we will one day judge the world and angels? I mean, is that something that they were taught? Is that something that, that they would have learned from him or some other leader in the church? It's hard to say whether it was something Paul taught them or whether it was something Timothy or, or Apollos or someone else came in and taught them. We don't know. Um, but what is clear and what is obvious by the tone and the, the line of questioning here is that Paul assumes that they should know it, at least insti- at the very least in- instinctively or intuitively. He says, as those have been united to Christ, we're in Christ. And then, therefore, we belong to Christ by way of, a sheer, by way of shared spiritual life. You know, the life of Christ has been it been extended to us as believers through the power of his Holy Spirit. He says, we certainly then, as believers, know that we will one day judge, that Christ, excuse me, will one day judge the world. I mean, you have to understand that to understand the gospel, that, that, that sinners are under God's wrath, under God's judgment, which means that one day God will judge this world. This, by world, we mean this entire system, world system that stands in opposition to God and the world. Uh, and, and, and will be brought to judgment. John 5, verse 22, Jesus says that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And John 5, verse 27 says that God the Father gave him, son, uh, gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. I mean, even Jesus himself proclaimed that he was the one who would one day in the future judge the world. And Jesus' reference to himself as the Son of Man in John 5 and in other places, um, for those who knew the Old Testament scriptures and knew them well, they would have, that, that would have reminded them of Daniel 7. And, and in Daniel 7, verse 22, it says, The Ancient of Days uh, was, gave judgment to the saints of the Most High. And it speaks of a time arriving when believers... Uh, would take possession of God's kingdom. So all of those uh, pictures and allusions are kind of swirling together here as Paul writes. And he's alluding to the fact that, listen, Christ is going to judge the world. Um, We are with him, right? We stand alongside him as those who are in Christ. and, And we've been washed clean by his blood, so we're not going to be judged Therefore, we will stand with him in some unique way, the specifics of which isn't entirely clear, but we are God's people, and we will judge somehow with him when that future judgment happens. And he says, we'll also judge angels. Again, what angels is he talking about? Well, he's most likely talking about fallen angels, demonic forces that have been kept even under bondage to this day. Jesus says in in Matthew 25 of that final judgment, that he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so there's a clear illust- uh, cross-references in Scripture that speak of angels, fallen angels, as those who will be judged by Christ. So not only will Christ render judgment over the earthly realm, we see in verse 3, he will render judgment over the fallen angels in the heavenly realm. All judgment is given to the Son, and they are cast into the lake of fire with the rest of the unredeemed. Paul's point then is very simple. Anyone with any common sense would have been able to follow his line of argumentation here. He says, if you and I as believers are somehow qualified to stand with Christ 
as he judges the earthly realm and the heavenly realm, if we can stand with him in that, then we are more than capable, more than able to judge the comparatively meaningless disputes that crop up between us in this life between believers. You look at verse 2, he says, If this world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Um, and and the, the emphasis here is, are you not competent to, to, to constitute the, and judge, render judgment on the trivial matters, the totally insignificant things? Verse 3, how much more matters of this life? The word, the term for matters here is, is talking about just everyday kind of minutiae. Not only is it, are they comparatively less significant than the grand themes that God will judge, but they're just the everyday things of life. He says, how much more capable are you able to judge those things? The conclusion that he's making is, is just inescapable. He says it's, it's obvious. If you can judge that, you can judge one another and make a decision. It's like asking a senior software programmer, hey, can you, can you write a program that displays a pop-up box that says, hello world, right? Can you do that? Uh, or a surgeon, can you stitch up this little tiny cut on my hand, right? Or a mechanic, can you change the oil in my car, right? It's, it's one of those things, it's like, are you kidding me? I, I could do that with one hand tied behind my back. I don't even need to be awake to do that. When two Christians have a dispute over anything, really, but especially over the trivial matters, maybe one of those owes, maybe one Christian owes another Christian money for work that they did on their home. Or maybe one Christian is in partnership in business with another Christian and there's some kind of a dispute about how to um, move forward on some particular issue. Or, or maybe two Christian siblings are at odd about how to disperse the assets from a parent's estate. Or maybe a Christian is working for another Christian and believes that they've been wrongfully terminated from their employment. Right, we're not talking about necessarily criminal things because criminal... Uh, things that break the law, like murder, abuse, those kinds of things, those are handled, and Paul makes that clear, that's the purview of the governing authorities. They execute righteousness and punish wickedness, Romans 13. But for civil matters and small claims and intellectual property and estate planning and all those kinds of things, when two Christians are involved, we have a responsibility to settle those disputes in-house and with the help of godly leaders, perhaps maybe even in a more formal context like Christian arbitration. Paul's point is that as believers, we are more than capable of handling these kind of disputes internally. And therefore, there is no biblically defensible reason to drag those things into secular court. So that's kind of our first principle. In verse 4 to 6, he gives us a second principle. Here in, uh, And he says, uh, he asks another set of questions and it gives us a second principle. It's really the, the mirror image of the first principle. And it almost seems like, why are you making this a separate point? But it's because Paul's argument shifts a little bit in 4 to 6. And the, the principle is this, Christians must not settle disputes with other Christians externally. So, you know, he's, the, the, the first principle is we must settle disputes between Christians internally. But by necessity, that means that we must not settle disputes externally. And that's where Paul goes in verses 4 to 6. 
Um, and his reasoning is important to understand. He says, so if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, the, the everyday matters, the kind of minutia of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no consequence or of no account in the church? And um, uh, many of you use ESV translation, and I think it does a much better job of grabbing a hold of what Paul's really saying here. He says, the ESV says it this way, If you have such trivial cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? And that is what he's saying. He said, with these kinds of things, why would you ever take them to unbelievers? It seems ridiculous to Paul to have two Christians drag their dispute into a secular court. He says, how do you entrust jurisdiction to them? To them. You're going to let a person who doesn't share the Holy Spirit's insight into God's word, a person who doesn't possess a true knowledge of God's will, you're going to let someone who has no familiar, familiarity with God's ways, you're going to let them weigh in and render judgment in a dispute between two children of the living God? Paul says, no. When you and I accepted Christ, we rejected the world's standards, and so it would be completely out of character for us to run back to them to submit to judgment for those, uh, with those who have no spiritual standing, so to speak, among God's people. It's like asking your dentist to come over and sign off that your roof repair is up to code. Like, what, what, what qualifies them to weigh in on that subject? Yeah, they fix teeth. It doesn't mean that they can fix your roof or say that your roof was fixed properly. Unbelievers have no shared insight, and this is why Paul says this, they have no shared insight into God's will and God's ways. So to turn to them for judgment is, is a complete 180. It's to submit your case to the values and judgments of those whose worldview we've rejected, whose worldview we've turned, turned away. It's just completely contrary to who we are in Christ. Again, he's appealing to who we are. You, he says, you should, verse 5, you should be ashamed. It is, I say this to your shame. I find it interesting that in chapter 4, verse 14, if you remember, he told them, he says, I'm not writing these things to shame you. <laughs> but as you get to chapter 6, he says, actually, <laughs> if the shoe fits, you should be ashamed. <laughs> you know, it, you should be ashamed. He says, your cluelessness on this issue of lawsuits is so at odds with godly conduct that I will knock you down a peg or two and humble you and demolish your pride if it means that that will bring your conformity, your, your behavior into conformity with Christ. That's why he says here, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren but brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. He, he, he strikes at, right at the heart of what they valued most. Because you remember in chapters 1 through um, really 4, what was the issue that, that Paul's dealing with? They, were, they thought they were super wise. In fact, they were, thought they were wiser than Paul. They thought they were wiser than Timothy and Apollos. Um, they were looking down at Paul because they say, well, Paul doesn't understand. Paul is kind of a simpleton. And he says, listen, if you're so smart, if you're so wise and knowledgeable, if you have such insight as you claim to have, why can't you guys handle this internally? 
right? He's, he's turning around and using their sinful pride as an illustration to show them that their behavior is inconsistent. He says, if you were so knowledgeable, then you probably could uh, take care of this on your own. But apparently, you know, apparently that's not the case. And you have to run to the pagan courts to sort out all your trivial disputes. His, his argument is simply this. Unbelievers don't have a monopoly on wisdom. You don't need to run they don't need to run to the unbelievers to get judgment on these issues. There, there ought to be at least one wise Christian in their midst who can turn to, uh, they can turn to, and he can guide them to a path of uh, resolving that dispute. When we have disagreements with each other, we don't need to immediately run to the secular authorities, right? Like little toddlers who need daddy to referee playtime. You all have had little kids around where one little kid fights with another little kid, and they what do they do? Mom, Dad, he won't give this to me. That's what, what they were doing, essentially. That's what they were doing in running to the unbelieving authorities to deal with their believers' disputes with one another. A perfect illustration, kind of a timely illustration, um, is uh, not that long ago, a major denomination in the United States had a had their, their kind of national convention where they elect a new president of their denomination. And uh, people's names are put forward, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a political thing. But they, um, one particular gentleman was, I guess, very hopeful that he was going to be elected the next president. And it turns out some information was released in the process of his kind of campaign soliciting input at the convention, and, and he ended up losing. He didn't get elected president of the this uh, major evangelical denomination. And that gentleman then turned around after the fact and filed a lawsuit against another leader in their denomination claiming defamation, false light invasion of privacy, and, and emotional distress. So he lost his bid to become president of this denomination. And in response to his losing, he decided... I'm going to take this other person who released the information and kind of made it known to court. No. (laughs) No, this is exactly what Paul's talking about here. This is the kind of thing that is completely out of bounds. And remember when I saw the headline, uh, I thought this is is exactly what Paul's saying should never happen. And I think he did eventually withdraw the lawsuit, but not before it made national headlines, right? it's, 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 It's shameful. Paul says you should be ashamed of yourselves, Christians must not settle disputes with other Christians externally. So Paul's rhetorical questions in verses 2 to 3 and then in verses 4 to 6 have shown us that Christians should settle disputes with other Christians internally and on the flip side, never do that externally. That's kind of point 1 and point 2. As we come to verse 7 and 8, Paul gets to the heart of the matter with a few more questions. And here we see a third principle, and it's this. Christians must hold the things of this world with an open hand, including their rights. Christians must hold the things of this world with an open hand, including their rights. This opening phrase in verse 7 is is hard to... Um, translate in English. 
He says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? But on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your own brethren. The beginning of verse 7, you could translate it this way. He says, to have lawsuits between Christians at all, you could translate it like this, is a total moral failure. He said it is a total moral failure. Even arbitration, which he concedes is, can happen if necessary, he said even that is not good. But to have believers airing out their dirty laundry before the secular world in the courts, he says that is a complete and utter moral failure. That's what that term means. This is compounding the intensives at the beginning of verse 7. As Christians, all we should ever have to do to resolve a dispute is step one of church discipline, where Paul, or Jesus says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Like, that should be it. And um, it shouldn't have to go further than that. Anything above that, Paul says, is really ends up being a defeat. It's a loss, and his questions highlight that. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And these two questions, they tee up what he's going to teach us in verse, uh, chapter 8 and again in chapter 9 in a lot greater detail. And it's this, to be, it's better to be wronged and let go of the things of this world than to wrong Christ or to wrong one another. It is better to be wronged and let go of the things of this world than to wrong or do wrong by Christ and to wrong one another. That's what he's driving at here. We're people of the future and our new identity must shape our living in the present. The world says, it's my right. The world says, that's not fair. The world says, I deserve and demand justice. But the Christian says, looks at all that and says, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The verbs that he uses in these questions are in the middle voice. It's permissive. He says, why not let yourself be wronged? Why not let yourself be defrauded? In other words, you're sort of giving permission to others to be able to do that without responding in kind. You say, but that's not fair. I mean, this person did wrong that other person. That's not reasonable. That's not that that that's unjust. And to which Paul would say, "You're right. It's not reasonable. It's not fair. It is unjust. But it was neither was it fair or reasonable or just for the blameless Son of God to go to the cross and to suffer and bleed and die for sins he never committed. But you know what? He did that." Christ surrendered his rights because he was thinking about the future. He was looking ahead to the greater glory that would come to God in saving lost sinners. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was without blame of any kind. And he died for us, so that, he says, he might bring us to God. 
Christ is our example in this situation like this. He's, it is better to endure wrong and let yourself be cheated out of what rightfully belongs to you than to destroy the name of Christ or to destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. In this present evil age, selfishness reigns. In this present age, material possessions and wealth define us. In this present age, individual rights are held up as supreme, but we are not people of this present age as Christians. We are people of the future, and we belong to Christ. And if getting what we're owed or getting perfect justice or pressing our rights to their uppermost limit means dragging Christ's reputation through the mud or ripping apart the unity of the body of Christ, Paul says it is better to let yourself be wronged. It is better to let yourself be defrauded. Anything beyond that is a moral failure, total moral failure. I mean, say you were wronged and you take your brother or sister to court and you win. Paul says you lose. Or maybe you did wrong that other person. You did take something that belonged to them or you did break your contract or obligations or commitments or whatever the situation is and, and you, you go to court and you win. Maybe you still win and you, and you get some kind of advantage over your brother or sister. Paul says you've lost. In fact, it's what he says in verses 9 through 11 to point out that if you live like the world, you put your own soul in jeopardy. So no matter whether you win or lose, you lose. <laughs> Heads I win, tails you lose. It's, it's a total loss. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be people of the future, we must be willing to overcome evil with good. First Thessalonians 5, verse 15 says, See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for another, for one another, and for all people. Or if you look at 1 Peter um, chapter 2, in verse 19, he says, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, he says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. You and I have been called for the purpose of suffering for Christ's sake. And that's going to look different for different people in different contexts and in different times. But we need to be willing to suffer for Christ's sake. You and I have been called to live like people of the future now in the present. And if you and I hold the things of this world with a clenched fist, I got to get what's mine, including our rights, we'll lose in the end. If we hold the things of this world with an open hand, it's just stuff. It's just my reputation. What difference does it make? We will be blessed. A man walked into a lawyer's office and asked, Sir, I'd like to know how much you charge 
for a case or a lawsuit? The lawyer responded, $100 for every three questions. The man replied, what in the world? Is that, isn't that kind of expensive? To which the lawyer responded, yes. And what is your third question? We can be like that lawyer sometimes with people, can't we? We, with everyone we interact with, including God's people in his church, we're over here counting all the mint and dill and cumin like the Pharisees. We got to make sure we, we get what's ours or what was owed to us, and we fail to love God and his people. But Christ has shown us a, a better way. And Paul is pointing us through these pointed questions to a better way. Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? That's in the law. The, the judgment, the, the punishment should fit the crime. In other words, that they should be just. But Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. See, this is, this, Jesus is showing us the spirit of the law and what we as citizens of heaven, kingdom citizens, that's the attitude that we should have. It's greater than the world. So to be a lover of Christ, to be an alien and stranger, to be a citizen of heaven, to be a people of the future, that must shape how we live now in the present. And so Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Why not turn the other cheek, as Jesus says? Why not Give up your cloak. Why not go the second mile? And I think it all boils down to the grace of God in us. And I think a helpful principle is this. Grace for the believer means grace goes the second mile as Christians. It's not about what we're owed. It's not about what's right for us or what we individually want. Grace says, I'm going to go that second mile. You want me to go one? I'll go with you two. And that's the principle that, that is underscored here. And Paul's saying, if we hold to the things of this world, if we hold them with a clenched fist, we lose. And we'll find ourselves like these Corinthians, doing whatever it takes, appealing to anybody and everybody, airing all our dirty laundry before the, Lord, before the world. And he says, if you do that, it's a It's loss. It's better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. Because Christ, you know, is this, all this stuff is just stuff. It's all going to burn up in the end. And uh, it's better to be humble and to forgive than to be embittered. So that's the principle here. And, and Paul's going to expand on this in verses 9 to 11 and even into the end of the chapter to show how this isn't who we are anymore. If you look at the end of um, verse 11, he says, Such were some of you, 
You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. So he says, you're, you're people of the future. You're not like this anymore. So we need to set those things aside. It helps us think rightly about not only the specifics of law and lawsuits and court and whatnot, but even how we think about the things of this world. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your encouragement and your word which has been preserved and handed down to us through the ages and it points us to these greater spiritual realities. Help us to be the kind of people who are of the future, Lord. Help us to have a kingdom mindset. Help us to have our minds and hearts set on things above, not on things below. And, and that obviously should, um, that should affect even how we relate to one another in a, in a disagreement in, as brothers and sisters. Lord, help us never to drag your church uh, the reputation of Christ in your church through the, through the mud, but rather will we be humble enough to accept loss for the greater purposes of the gospel testimony and for the unity of your church. Um, Lord, we, we thank you again and ask your blessing on our time around the Lord's table even now in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church. Visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.